Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to the latest episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing our discussion of Fire on the Horizon, and the last chapter segues into this one quite a bit. So this one is called The Language of Ritual Viewed from Within, and we talked a little bit about that last time, but we're going to dive a little deeper this time. So starting out with a quote here, you say, One way to communicate the life in God that maintains the I-Thou relationship that we talked about last time is through ritual and rites. Ordinances can convey the life of God to our souls because they participate in what they signify our relationship with God, by which we become identified with God. So, especially the last part there, how do ordinances actually participate in what they signify? What do you mean by that? So, to put it very simply, the ordinances mediate the experience for us of being Christ and being Christified. And so they signify symbolically participating in Christ's life, and they also mediate Christ's life to be in us through the ordinances. And so we both participate in the ordinances by doing them, and they also are a spiritual experience at the same time. And so the life of Christ is also embodied in the ordinance. Are you referring to ordinances in general or to temple ordinances specifically here? Both. Virtually every ordinance that you can think of is a way of bringing us to replicate Christ's experience and to embody his life in us. Okay, that makes sense. And then you go on to say that the ordinances are a means of ritually participating in the divinizing experience of Jesus Christ. I guess that's what you kind of said. But you give a couple of examples of ordinances and how they do this in the book. So I'll let you do that, but that you go into baptism and then kind of the sacrament as examples of how they bring us through, you know, like putting on Christ or taking up Christ's life. How did that work? I'm going to start. Baptism and the sacrament are obvious ways of replicating Christ's experience. Not only was Christ baptized, but baptism signifies in its very essence going down into the water and therefore going into the tomb with Christ in death and then ushering forth in resurrection and newness of life when we come out of the water. So the water's not magic. What is magic is the repentance that accompanies us so that a new life takes up a boat within us. And we signify our willingness to begin to be the very kind of person that Christ is by not only performing the ordinance that he performed, but by embodying in our lives his own life experience. I mean, this is all common from Paul's letters in Corinthians. I mean, everybody knows this kind of symbolism. Sacrament, and we'll get into this more when we get into the last chapters, what we call the sacrament is an ordinance of taking Christ's very life into us. And so we eat the bread, which represents his body. And so his body becomes our body. It becomes the energy of our lives and becomes the stuff out of which our own bodies are made. And so we're taking Christ's life into us to become our life. And we're also taking the water or the wine, which represents his blood. Not only the blood that was spilled for us, but life, and especially for Hebrews and for those in the Aramaic-speaking world, blood was the source of life. Life was located within the blood. And so by taking Christ's blood, we literally are taking Christ's life into us again to be within us in the sense of taking up a boat and habitation within our very being. What we're looking at in terms of the sacrament 
and when we get into this, we'll get into this a bit more later, but there are small things in the sacrament that we sometimes overlook. It's not in the scriptures anywhere, and I don't see it written anywhere, but every sacrament meeting that I've been to, they cover the sacrament with a white cloth. And it's like somebody intuitively understood that Christ's body in his life and death must be covered in a shroud of death, and that when we uncover it, we're uncovering his body to the view of the congregation. And so we're participating ritually in the burial, the death, and the resurrection of Christ again in the sacrament. And we'll get more into how the sacrament represents a Christifying type of an experience. So the ordinance both exemplifies Christ's experience. He's commanded us to do these things to be just as he is and to do what he did and taught us to do. It is also a deeply symbolic experience, but it's more than that. It's an experience where what is symbolized literally is also occurring. By undertaking to perform these ordinances, we are participating literally in the life of Christ to enter into us, to be in us and take up a boat. And so they signify and participate in what they point to. We probably want to draw a distinction somewhere, whereas like in the Catholic tradition, when they take the Eucharist, they have... I don't know how close they cling to it now, but they've in the past had a doctrine where the bread and the water literally are the flesh and blood of Christ, and when you're taking them into you, they literally are that. It's not just a symbol. So, I don't know, I always thought of it kind of more as a symbol, but... It's called transubstantiation, and transubstantiation is a metaphysical change. I mean, the literal reading of what the Catholics say is that the bread literally is the body of Christ. I mean, it's you know, literally the DNA and, and makeup of Christ's body. More reasonable Catholics are simply saying this is a deeply symbolic act in which we take Christ's life into us, not merely as a representation, but also as an actuality. The deeper meaning of the transubstantiation, and there is a deep meaning in it, and it's true to this extent, by participating in these ordinances with a pure heart, we actually are taking Christ's life into us by participating in these sacramental, you know, if you want to call them, they call them sacramental ordinances. But by participating in these ordinances, it's not merely a symbolism that's taking place. It really is Christ's life that is entering into us. Now, it's not literally his body. His DNA is taking up a boat in us, but his spiritual DNA is taking up a boat in us. The bread and the water isn't actually doing something literally for Christ, but you're saying symbolically by doing that, the act of committing is a real commitment, but not, I don't know, like I'm just trying to draw the line between like, how literal you're trying to take it here. Well, I'm taking it literally in this sense. The bread literally does become our bodies. It gives us the energy of life. And water literally is necessary for life and becomes a part of our life blood. So to this extent, there is a literalness, but it isn't literally the blood of Christ. and It isn't literally his body. However, it is literally, in this sense, the light of Christ, his intelligence, power, glory, literally entering into us to give us life, to vivify us, and to live within us. And this is not merely symbolic. It's a reality. But that's brought through the metaphor of that. Because, I mean, I'm just trying to say that you can eat bread and water another time and it doesn't do anything. And blessing, it doesn't necessarily change it like we like Catholics do. But you're saying it, it, it allows us to be open to that kind of thing? Well, let me, let me put it this way. A part of the purpose for which I wrote this book was so that we could experience in reality what symbolically is being pointed to. Now, when I was eight and I was baptized, I hadn't done anything that I really needed to repent of, and I don't think I had any deep spiritual experience. I just did it because my parents told me to. 
you know, that ordinance in and of itself was not life-changing for me. However, it's continued to change my life for the rest of my life. I now appreciate it as an adult. The sacrament, I, I take more thoughtfully because I'm older, but it, when I was young, I didn't. So what I'm asserting, look, a baptism can just be a bath. Eating bread and water can just be eating bread and water. But for a person who truly is a Christian, and I'm going to say this with full heart, the difference between a mere Christian who would like to be a wannabe Christian and one who truly is Christian is that the person who is truly Christian has Christ in him or her as the very life of their being, a co-shared life in which we know that Christ has taken up a boat in us. We feel the power. We feel the energy. We feel the glory and light. It doesn't always remain with us. That's the whole point, though, of the sacrament. I mean, there's this word that it may always be with you. The whole point of this is that it doesn't dissipate. We are growing in the process of sanctification, and so we are growing in the light of Christ. And these ordinances effectuate this growth in large part because they remind us of the life that we have. And this is what we are doing. When I was young, I didn't really commit to Christ. I know that I didn't fully understand what was taking place. I still don't. But my experience of my baptism now is very different than the experience I had when I actually did it. But as I look back on my baptism, I recommit every Sunday to what I committed to in baptism. That's a covenant to take upon me the name of Christ and to become a Christian. I am being recognized as a Christos. I am being recognized as a person who is truly in Christ. And if I'm truly a Christian and my commitment is with a pure heart, then this life actually is in me. And I'm not sure I could have said this at 15. I'm not sure I could have said it at 35 fully like I, I know it now. And I'm sure in years to come, I'll, I'll experience it more fully. But having lived a life as I have, I've noticed within me this life and how I've never been alone and how grateful I am to have this co-shared life always present with me. And so this kind of a life is the life that a Christian is called to, a co-shared life in which Christ is with us, then not only is he in us, but we are in him. We begin this interpenetrating, co-lived experience in this life. That's what sanctification is about, and it's what the ordinances are about. They're pointing to the ultimate relationship where we literally indwell in each other with a fullness of glory. Now our glory is only partial, but at length it shall be full and complete and a fullness of glory, just as the scriptures say. And so what I'm talking about isn't just a metaphor. It's not just a symbol. It's a lived reality. And it's the life of a Christian who truly commits to Christ and engages in an ongoing path of repentance on a daily basis. We all do things that violate our own moral standards and violate the standards that others would impose upon us. We all have done things we're not very proud of. But over a lifetime, I would like to believe that people refine themselves. I'd like to believe I'm more refined now than I was when I was younger. I have a lifetime of experience and refinement, and my capacity to love is greater. My capacity to appreciate my experience is greater. And so with life experience, this kind of deeper meaning and more complete experience, I think, is just part of what it is to be a human being. It's part of the human condition to more fully grasp what our experiences mean. So when I was baptized, I didn't fully understand it, but I go back to my baptism repeatedly in that I have taken on me a covenant to be as Christ is and to mourn with those that mourn and to succor those that stand in need of succor. 
I take these kind of things literally, and they're very, very important. And so to be a true Christian is to live this co-shared life and to be growing within the light, to be in the process of sanctification. To be a wannabe Christian is to not quite get that, to know that other people talk about it, but not to fully understand that that's a reality. Coming back to the question then, so would you say what you're putting forth is that a ritual is pointing to something, and I guess like the actual things you do in the ritual are probably not literal, but they're symbolic, but the covenants that you're making in the ritual are real. And the things that are resulting in that, in that, you know, accepting Christ, that's a real thing. You're not metaphorically accepting Christ or accepting him upon you. You are actually doing that. But this thing is just kind of bringing you through this ritual. Yeah, but I am also, I'm dying to an old life. Well, not literally though, right? Well, no, literally. You've seen this with your converts who join the church and they leave behind an old life. It's an amazing miracle that we ask them to carry out, to, to leave behind everything that they've been and to enter into a new kind of life. And at baptism, that's the signification of the moment at which I commit to leave behind everything that I've known as my life, and I'm now going to enter into a new life. And it will be a new life in, in more ways than one. I'm now not only going to live life differently, I'm going to live a shared life in which Christ is now in me. And I will seek to reflect him in what I do and what I am. And so it is literal in a very literal sense. But of course, baptism can just be a bath. Maybe not, you know, nothing more than that. Water isn't magic. The real change is in one's heart and in one's commitment. Okay, so the, yeah, the commitment is all real. All that's real. Anyway, I, I think we're saying the same thing just differently. Okay, in the chapter, and I don't know, don't go too deep into this, but you touch on some of some older Christian rituals of anointings that obviously you put in there because they're somewhat reminiscent of some of the washings and anointings that take place in LDS temples. But go ahead and briefly touch on those Christian rituals and then what you get out of the symbolism of them. These are from the writings of Cyril of Jerusalem, Theodore of Mopsestuia, and Ambrose at Milan. In the late 3rd century, in the beginning of the 4th century, there was kind of a revival of what they regarded to be the older rituals. And here's what would happen. In the buildings that they had, outside of the buildings where they actually worshipped, they had what's known as a baptistry. You can still see this, for instance, if you go to Florence, Italy. There's a baptistry that's outside and, and it's near the Duomo there. What would happen is after a Christian had been a Christian for a year, they would then be initiated into the mysteries. And here's what they would do. They would approach the baptistry. And as they approached the baptistry, they would enter into the anteroom of the baptistry. And, and a person there would essentially be representing Christ. And they would raise their arm and turn to the four corners and renounce Satan from all the four corners. Because they couldn't enter into the baptistry until Satan had been renounced and cast out. They would then take off their clothes. Now. I'm unclear as to whether they walked in naked or whether they had probably a loincloth on, but they would then walk into the baptistry. In the baptistry, there is a font, not a little basin, but a font. And they would enter into the baptistry and come into this font, and they would then be washed on the various parts of their body. So they would receive a washing. They would then come out of the font, and they would be anointed. And the anointing was not the cross on the forehead as it later became, and that was all that was left. The ceremony in all of these is very similar. I anoint you on your brows, that you may forever see the glory of God. 
I anoint your eyes that you may see Christ. I anoint your nose that you may smell the sweet savor of the offerings to God. What that means is they had incense that they would burn. I anoint your mouth that you may always speak the truth and that your prayers may ascend to heaven. I anoint your breast that you may have health and strength. And I anoint your legs that you may run and use them for the service of the Lord. You know, my rough translations of the Greek. And then they would be told, just as Adam came into the garden naked, so God made for him a covering. And then they would give them a white robe, I suppose, as the best translation, lens type of, what I say, this lens swallow, a covering, a sheet covering. And they would then be covered and they would be told that they are putting on Christ and that they should never take Christ off. And then they would go from there over to the cathedral or the church, probably not cathedrals because this is third and fourth century and cathedrals were far in the future, but they still had some nice churches back then, not as nice as they later had. So they would then proceed to the cathedral where they would receive first communion. They would then take the sacrament for the first time as a true Christian, even though they had been baptized into the fold a year before. So they'd already taken first communion, but they're taking it again as a true Christian at this point. So that's basically the 3rd and 4th century ritual that we're looking at. Of course, it will have a lot of resonance for people who have been through the temple. And, you know, I think these are important writings. But again, we can see very clearly how a person is actually replicating the life of Christ. They're putting on Christ. But the most important part is like when Cyril of Jerusalem gives this lectures, the Catechesis Mystagogicae in Greek, and what he's doing is... He explains, for instance, with the anointing, you are becoming a Christ or Christos. You are you are anointed to be just as Christ is because he is the anointed one, and you now are also an anointed one. That's what Christ means, right? That's what Messiah right. and Christ means, just the anointed one or the oiled yeah. one. That, so so Messiah in, in um, Aramaic means the, uh, an anointed one, and Christos means an anointed one in Greek. So Christians are those who are the anointed ones. It doesn't mean Messiah per se, it means an anointed one. And so that's how the Christians thought of themselves. They define themselves in terms of the anointing to be as Christ is. We're becoming Christ because we're anointed to be a Christos. It's very important to understand that these rituals are all pointing toward Christification, and Christification points toward this indwelling unity relationship that is the apex of the human imagination and possibilities for our realization. When we're talking about ordinances, that's the kind of depth I think that we're looking at. Now, when we participate in the Temple Endowment, it's all multidimensional. And as I said last time, it's not my place to tell a person what the real meaning of an endowment is, because there is no simple one real meaning. The meaning will be revealed in the experiencing of it. This kind of experiential knowledge that will be unique and subjective to each person but there will be breakthroughs and insights and revelations during the performance of the ordinances in order to better be a Christian and to actually live a life that grows out of that Christianity so that our works reflect the works that Christ would do as, as we live in. In the book, you talk about the temple ordinances and you mentioned like, you know, we do work for the dead there as well. And so you say, because of this, thus the ordinances do not merely represent, but also actually constitute our identity and relationship with those who have departed as a means of accomplishing their exaltation in addition to our own. So that's, again, referring to the work for the dead. So as far as fitting it into the paradigm we're looking at here with the language of ritual viewed from 
within. So for these people, what are you saying about them or the, the dead and how do they fit in here? We become saviors on Mount Zion um, through this work. We become their saviors because through our love and efforts, they have doors open to them to salvation that previously weren't opened. These ordinances are a very deep reality. It's very hard, it turns out, to give a true gift. And the reason it's hard to give a true gift is that we always create an obligation to gift back. So it may look like we're giving a gift so that we can make ourselves look good, or we're giving a gift so that we can feel good about ourselves, or we're giving a gift so that, you know, we obligate somebody to recognize us and give us a gift in return. It's very hard to give a true gift. But I think the ordinances for the dead open up the best possibility of a true gift that there is. There's no reason to perform these ordinances other than the sheer love of giving to them what we regard as the most valuable things in our life. They're not there to give us any pat on the back. Nobody is there to, you know, recognize what we've done. I guess we could feel good about ourselves, but the fact is that we're doing an ordinance vicariously, and so it's not about us. That's what we're taught. And so this seems to me to be a way of actually giving a true gift of love, which it seems to me has immense value. So immensely valuable that I I think it comes as close to true Christ-like love as a human being may be capable of. And so in doing work for the dead, Kierkegaard, by the way, Soren Kierkegaard, has a few chapters on, on work for the dead, and this is the kind of argument that he makes. And so what I would like to say about the temple is that it's so multidimensional in the way that it is opening us to be able to be as Christ and to be a Christ, to be an anointed one. And it's opening up for us new vistas and possibilities to give true love and to break through the barriers that we have and to have new ways of serving. I mean, that pretty much says what we want to say, unless you have anything else to say about the ritual from within. I do want to say this about the ritual from within. Ritual from within is viewed from the perspective of an I-thou relationship. What that means in an I-thou relationship is that we treat this as sacred and holy, just as we treat persons as sacred and holy. They're not mere things. And it's an extremely important dimension of the sacred and the holy that... We know through these ordinances interpersonally what we are effectuating. And so it it is a true means of having this interpersonal relationship effectuated and knowing Christ in a true manner. Joseph Smith has said as much. We come to know God through these ordinances. And so when we view it from within the I-Thou relationship, something else happens. Just as in the I-Thou relationship, the I is created in the image of the Thou as a true thou also. In performing these ordinances, we are also created as a new person. We are created as a thou in a relationship with a sacred thou. And it creates us to be the person that we are always in relationship, never alone, always in relationship to every other human being who's ever lived or who ever will live. That's what the temple ordinances are all about. There is no person who is merely an island. To the extent that we are a human being, we're connected with every being who's ever lived or ever will live. And so what we're focusing on here is the kind of maximal inclusion of all others into this relationship of divine indwelling unity in the purest love that we know. So we actually are embodying through these ordinances the kind of relationship that is the ultimate goal of any Christian Catholics call it a beatific vision, but that almost sounds like a letdown because it's like, oh, I'm going to sit here and dwell forever on the, on the beauty of God. 
but that's not what it is. It's I am going to participate forever in the fullness as a human being fully in relationship with all other human beings who ever have or will exist in a fullness of indwelling glory and love with them. And that's my ultimate goal. Nobody gets left behind. Everybody gets included. And to the extent there's any person who isn't included, our glory is diminished. Our happiness is diminished and our ability to love hasn't been fully realized. So at the end of the day, these ordinances are all about the fullness of this glory that we've been called to, to participate in the Godhead and to love one another just as they love one another, to be literally in one another. So ordinances are very sacred means of achieving the most valuable realization that human beings know, and that is the fullness of a loving relationship. And this is a majestic good. It's a good so marvelous that we can't even imagine anything greater. That's why it's so sacred. We're talking about the most valuable reality that human beings can even imagine, and even way beyond our imagination. So this is valuable and sacred because if we use this to mock it or to make fun of it, we're taking the most valuable thing in human experience and profaning it by subserving it to something much less valuable, the profane and the nonsensical. And so for people who do that, it's an enormous failure to recognize the value. And they're literally ripping themselves off from what could have been experienced and denigrating that which is of greatest value. It's very sad when that happens. It's wonderful when it doesn't, and when people truly realize the value of what they're dealing with. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.